this week's TripCast, we'll talk about the political year ahead with a heated battle for the Texas House and the state's 38 electoral votes. But before we do, a word from our TripCast sponsors. Citify. Citify is monitoring cities 24-7. Your keywords trigger email alerts and our database permanently maintains city documents, even after cities delete them. More at citify.app. Raise your hand, Texas. Raise Your Hand Texas is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. More at raiseyourhandtexas.org. Hello, this is Alexa Uda here on Wednesday, January 8th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, officially taking over from our former editor-in-chief, Emily Ramshaw. (laughs) Over the next few weeks and months, you might notice a few tweaks here and there, but rest assured the Tribcast will continue to be a weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week, unfortunately, by CEO Evan Smith. And let me say, I'm going to haze the (laughs) shit out of you in the first couple of weeks on this podcast. That's basically what working with you is like. Yep. Uh, State politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hello, good afternoon. And managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello there. Isn't it great to have somebody who actually knows something hosting this podcast? <laughs> that was the point of having Cassie on. Yeah. Basically. Awesome. Oh, about you. Oh, yeah. me. No, you. Oh, as okay. So whatever happened cool. to that last podcast host? Where'd she go? I don't know. She's off doing something else. She's working now. at Lavaza now. <laughs> <laughs> as usual, we'll be taking your questions from Facebook and Twitter. So send them our way using the hashtag TribCast. Uh, all right. So we're sitting here eight days into what will be uh, surely a lively year of Texas politics and roughly a year out of the next legislative session uh, that I guess could be pretty markedly different if Democrats actually managed to flip the House. Uh, Cassie, obviously we've been talking about this for a little while now, but I've been struck recently by the amount of partners Democrats in Texas have recently gained, particularly on the money front, uh, going into 2020. But am I wrong to think that that mobilization isn't quite matched on the Republican side? Yeah, I think it looks a little bit different on the Republican side right now, and you are definitely at the state house level seeing a void with uh, the departure of Dennis Bonin. There's about three million sitting in his uh, campaign account, and nobody really knows what he plans to do with it quite yet. Whether that's going to go directly, uh, you know, to, to certain House incumbents who are seeking re-election and who are facing tough re-election battles. You've seen a couple different sorts of conversations and maybe different avenues uh, start to arise in terms of like what could maybe start to take place of that. Um, but I think a lot of it's still shaking out, definitely behind the scenes. Uh, remains to be seen what, what exactly the, the Republican game plan is uh, for the state house level. Go ahead, Evan. What do you want to yeah, say? you want to say No, something. I'm just, I'm respecting the new host's prerogative <laughs> to call on people. <laughs> no, you, I don't have to call on you. raise my hand like Horshack. Jump, ooh, a, ooh, jump, ooh, ooh. jump ahead. Um, you know, the, the part that we've talked about in the newsroom, I always love the part that people don't hear, but we get to talk about on a podcast like this is the conversation we had in the last couple of days around whether the Republicans are unified behind one person leading the effort as they seek to retain control of the House. And you said, and Patrick said, as we had this conversation, well, no, that's actually one of the narrative through lines is that the Democrats seem to be much more aligned in their efforts to flip the House. The Republicans are a little bit more fractured in their caucus in terms of the strategy to retain the House. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really interesting point to talk out loud about because it is the case that Republicans, whatever advantages they may have baked in, that's a, 
a, a hurdle they're going to have to step over at some point, yeah. getting, getting on the same page. Yeah, you have big money groups like TLR, Texans for Lawsuit Reform, and Associated Republicans of Texas who are completely committed to going after, uh, you know, other incumbents in the name of, you know, protecting said majority. Um, but on, you know, the House-specific front, I've been really struck by uh, there not really being like a, an exact equivalent to like the House Democratic Campaign Committee, the HDCC. Um, you know, you have this, this pack that's kind of uh, surfaced from Charlie Guerin, uh, it's pledged to raise $5 million. Carl Rove is listed as the treasurer. But, uh, you know, the messaging on that has been really specific. We're not going to target other incumbents from the other side of the party or from the other party, rather. Isn't that nutty? You think you're a Republican and you got $5 million to spend. You're not going to go after Michelle Beckley and Gina Kalani? Well, to, to be to be seen, to be determined if they raise $5 million. Well, uh, and here, one of the big challenges, I think, for a member of the House leading this effort is that there's a speaker's race at the end of the election. And do you really want to piss off a bunch of Democrats who then you're going to have to turn around and neither vote, a, you know, a couple weeks later after the election? Uh, you know, it's whoever that is, whether it's Charlie Guerin or anyone else, you know, and uh, not to say that he's uh, specifically going to be running for speaker, but, uh, you know, they have to be kind of thinking beyond November 2 because they're going to have to be in the election at this time. It's it's a kind of a weird dance that they have to be doing. Well, like pre-recording, I wondered if the bond and money would go to defending the House overall to keep it under Republican control or defending incumbents, Republican ones, who could face challenges from the right or just general challenges in their primaries. And now there's not even anyone to sort of play traffic cop on that decision. Right. Theoretically, that money is going to land in the control of somebody who can spend it on behalf of the party. The question is just whether Bonin could spend it and have it be perceived as a help to people, even though the money would be a help. Does the Bonin attachment to it, if Bonin is the one who doles it out, present kind of a stigma along with the money? Wasn't there some talk about him giving the money to somebody else to then give away through their doors? Yeah, their I mean, again, it's all speculation at this point, really. There's been some talk of, oh, is the speaker going to end up funneling the money to this new Garen pack? You know, the Charlie Garen and, and uh, Dennis Bonin are it's easy to get to five million when you get three from the right, speaker, right? Right. Yeah. Is is the speaker going to end up just spending it out of his own campaign account and keeping it in this pack that he created specifically to try to, uh, you know? retain the GOP majority. Um, you know, does he end up giving it to an outside group like ART? Does he end up, you know, dividing it and giving it to... Well, you kind of think he's, like, probably pretty pissed at the the chairs of those committees. That sort of ultimately signaled the death knell for his... Right, this is my, right? my fantasy, is that Dennis Bonin creates revenge pack. <laughs> Kill Bill. Oh, oh you <laughs> opposed... <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, you opposed me in the, in the speaker thing? You get a primary opponent. Yeah. You get a primary opponent, like Oprah now. He's giving away, you know... But 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 that he gives the money away more... But, I, of course, I don't think he's going to do that. But I do think it's complicated to have that three million sitting around. And, you know, uh, back to Cassie's point... If the if the dividing line in the caucus is we're only going to spend money to protect Republican incumbents and we're going to spend money to defend the seats that we have and to go after vulnerable Democrats who won seats last time that really were Republican seats only in the last election they, you know, momentarily, we hope, flipped to, from red to blue and to go after uh, our preferred uh, people in open seats to help our people and oppose other people. It's hard to make the argument on... I mean, it could be made, but it's hard to make the argument that, you know, our job is only to protect our Republican incumbents. I mean, this ain't beanbag like the old cliche says. It's just it's, – it's crazy to me to think that they wouldn't be looking at the seats that they may need to retain control of the House currently held in Democratic hands and say we're going to go back and get those back. 
Yeah. Right. Well, I have been thinking also a lot about the loss of straight-ticket voting, initially mm -hmm. mostly as an election administration problem, right? You have people who can no longer hit one button. What does that mean for long lines? We've you got think all of these, everything I as an election know. administration <laughs> yes, problem, Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> but, I mean, if you post Bonn and secret recording and all of that, you know, I, I do keep coming back to Michael Clint Sullivan on there saying that he was worried about straight-ticket voting because what if you had people who came out to re-elect Donald Trump and then never made it down to their state rep or didn't even know what a state rep was? I mean, I, I do think it's interesting in that this is now something that's going to be at play in all of these seats. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder, you know, do we think this is a sort of election where that could be determined by factors outside of the races in each district. I mean, I guess it's sort of been that, but this is a very specific election administration problem that they're now all dealing with. There's so much that we, I feel like, don't know, yep. and, and we won't know until after election day, the straight ticket voting, the influence of Trump, the demographic changes that have been happening in a lot of these districts. I mean, there's just so much uncertainty, and it just feels like we're entering this election cycle that feels just so much different than anything we've seen in the past. Um, I think that's a big takeaway. You know, uh, looking at uh, this problem of the do, do the Republicans have a leader, I mean, one thing they have going for them in terms of maybe even buying them some time to figure this out is that if you look at the ballot, it looks the ballot kind of looks like a pretty unified Republican Party. A lot of the incumbents in the House in particular have not drawn primary challenges this year. Um, you don't see as many of those kind of insurgent conservative candidates who are trying to kind of blow up the Republican Party, which helps. Um, in fact, there's there's more of that kind of, uh, there's, you know, more Democrats drawing primary challenges this time around. What so, did you say this morning? 17 Democrats have primary challengers versus nine Yeah, don't, uh, Republicans? Yeah, I... I, I <laughs> I'd, I'd love to, to check double check that on math that. on that, but yeah, that was. The, that we can was always edit this podcast later <laughs> yeah. if it turns out to be wrong. So. But I mean, one of the I think one of the fascinating things is when I was sitting down and kind of looking at what we need to be covering over the next few months is that you know at the first time in my career, there's more action in the general election than there is in the primaries, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. uh, you know that's kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, to your note earlier about, you know, how how much of a, is Trump going to be an influence on these down-ballot races? I mean, Matthew and I have been talking about this a lot. Like, how do how does our coverage need to look like when we're writing about these House races? And, you know, the way that I've, like, started to think about it is I think Trump and top, other top-of-ticket, you know, candidates, Cornyn, obviously, uh, congressional races, they're going to be, like, the largest factor in these down-ballot races. But it gets really interesting when you get to uh, a, a House district like Aaron's Wieners, where she She's, uh, you know, she campaigned as a pretty progressive Democrat, but she also like went to the ledge as a Democrat, as a freshman this this past cycle and uh, this past session and, and uh, you know, got a lot of like water infrastructure bills and, and other like pieces of legislation that voters like across the spectrum really wanted. Issues to them. Um, you know, one of the many Republicans challenging her for the spot is, has the last name Isaac, which is, uh, you know, the uh, Republican that preceded uh, Zwiener. So how does like name ID slash like local issues that voters like who are actually going to the polls have been like tracking and following, how much does that end up playing a role in these uh, races when you get down to it. You, you just made, I think, a critical uh, observation, which is absolutely true, and that is that if you've seen one House race, you've seen one House race. Mm -hmm. We have tended to want to paint all these races or all the congressional races, the Republican exodus, the so-called Texodus, with one brush, when the fact is each of these is individual. Each of these has local issues. 
you know, what happened in that district where Erin Zwiener, I always want to say her name is Zwiener. It is Zwiener, right? Zwiener. Mm-hmm. I always mispronounce it. It's like, it took me five years to pronounce like, Ura. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Erin <laughs> um, uh, Zwiener won a seat that had been held for a number of years by a Republican in a year in which, um, that's a, you know, Hayes County's been a pretty conservative county electorally for a long time. Uh, the uh, Texas State University students in that district came out in great numbers. They presumably had an effect on a how that, big effect. right? I mean, look, uh, Lupe Valdez beat Greg Abbott in Hayes County, yeah. mm-hmm. right? It wasn't just Aaron's Wiener. It was also at the governor's race level. We had this unusual outcome. Um, you know, there's a real question about what's going to happen in the next election and the dynamic of that county. I mean, that may be decided by Trump. And you also have a really uh, a marquee congressional race that touches that district between Chip Roy and Wendy Davis there'll be a ton of money in that district and a lot of effort to turn people out. I mean, but it's, again, it's, it gets to the back to the point that there's one race. I, I want to just go quickly, if you don't mind, to mm-hmm. what Matthew said about the primary being less interesting than the general. Agreed with an asterisk. You have a scenario setting up where you could have different Democratic presidential candidates win each of the first four uh, contests. And the Texas primary could actually have a much bigger impact on the ultimate nominee of the party than it typically does right in the past texas has tended to happen late enough in the process that well they pretty much decided who the nominee is based on the first states but you know Buttigieg could win iowa and sanders could win new hampshire you know let's just say for argument's sake warren because of the strong labor and other progressive group you know possibly she gets some strength and maybe she does well and wins Nevada or Biden wins Nevada, say conversely, and Biden does well in South Carolina where he's far ahead in the lead. You could have this situation where you come to Super Tuesday on March 3rd and the primary actually has this weird, massive impact in that race. Well, and the reality is that Texans, early voting starts before some of these first primaries. I mean, this will start playing an effect even before that. When does the early vote start? February 18th, yeah. Right, so February 3rd is... Iowa. So at least in a couple of those cases, mm-hmm. we will be voting before we know the outcomes, probably of Nevada and South Carolina. And a pretty big share of the electorate votes early and doesn't wait until election day. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, it'll be also interesting to know who at the time of March 3rd is still in the race. Right. Well, that gets us to our second topic. You're welcome. Uh, obviously, <laughs> both Texans are out of the race for president after Julian Castro announcements this week that he was ending his presidential campaign, though he will still be on the March primary ballot, both literally and I guess figuratively as a potential running mate for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Matthew, is this where you thought we'd be at this point with both Texans out? Yes, <laughs> to, to be honest. I mean, I think the writing has been on the wall with both these candidates for, you know, much of late uh, 2019 that, uh, you know, Beto dropped out maybe kind of sooner than we thought, but we he had kind of, his fade had been going on kind of throughout the summer. Castro, you know, really never picked up any momentum. There were a couple of times where it, we thought he might be having a moment and those moments were very fleeting. Um, but he hung around. Right? I mean, around. I wrote a profile on him back in June, and I remember us thinking, we got to get this out before he drops out. And that was seven months ago. You know, I said to his team before the Tribune Festival, when we asked him to come on stage with us at the festival at the Paramount, promise me you're not going to drop out. <laughs> right? Before before this, I mean, I was like, I think we were all like wondering, well, it wasn't really mm-hmm. 
he wasn't ever more than just a couple points in yeah. polls at most. Right? Yeah, and uh, I mean, effectively, you know, he missed the November debate, he missed the December debate, and by then, I think everyone kind of knew that this this isn't going to happen. Um, you know, so now we see, you know, what happens in March and uh, who's going to kind of compete here. And, you know, obviously Biden is leading in the polls. Texas is a state where having a lot of money really helps you, you know, because it's expensive to campaign here, especially when it's on Super Tuesday and there's a bunch of other states that are up there as well. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, to kind of what we were talking about earlier, we're, we're really looking like we might be in a situation where, you know, those of us at this table, those of us in the Tribune are very interested in a lot of what's going on kind of down ballot in March and, uh, and November, but it feels like the presidential race could really kind of suck up a lot of the voter attention in mm -hmm. both those races. And that'll be interesting both to see how those races play out, but then also how that affects the race for the House and congressional yeah. races. And you haven't mentioned Mayor Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. who, of course, has by design not made the debate stage because in part one of the thresholds you have to cross is a certain number of donors, and he's not taking donations, so he can't make the debate stage. Um, but he'll be in Texas this weekend on a bus tour from San Antonio to Austin to Dallas, and I bet he is going to spend like bananas mm -hmm. in the run-up to the primary, right? His whole play is to avoid those early states and to go after the big states on Super Tuesday and then Florida two weeks later and hope that he can insert himself into this process. So to your point about money, it's very expensive to be in Texas with a campaign. Statewide campaign, the average, Ross always says, is a million dollars a week on media. Got to have that kind of money. Uh, and Bloomberg obviously is showing no hesitation about it. I mean, God, he just, you know, Trump said he's taking out a $10 million ad for the Super Bowl. So Bloomberg said, I'll do a $10 million ad for the Super Bowl. How many campaigns even have $10 million to spend on a Super Bowl ad? Well, certainly not the two the Texans when they dipped out of this. But they are, you know, at least on the O'Rourke front, turning their attention back to some of these down-ticket races. I mean, obviously, he's had more time than Guster, who just dropped out this week. But I, I am curious to see how much O'Rourke comes out of this as a surrogate at the state level and the down-ticket level and whether Castro just sort of sticks as a war and surrogate on the national campaign and doesn't really come back down to some of these races. Well, and a great yeah. example of that, as Cassie knows well, is Liz Markowitz in the yeah. Zerwas district where the special election is... January 28th? Soon. End of, right. end of the month. Yep. Soon. Uh, Beto O'Rourke has made getting Liz Markowitz elected a crusade. And he's made it part of his effort to refocus his attention on, uh, on Texas... Michael Bloomberg was block walking for Liz Markowitz. Joe Biden is now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they're all to some degree seeing the value of associating with these down ballot races. And again, it reaffirms the idea that Texas matters and these candidates understand that when the primary comes around, they're still going to be alive. And the question of who wins that primary is going to still be a live issue. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, Looking back at, you know, the the pre-presidential race Beto and the amount of excitement that he generated here and really even across the country. Fifth Beatle Beto. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, there was some of that was personality. A lot of that was personality and energy and his driving around. But, you know, I think something that maybe people have missed about this was kind of what he represented as like this person who, you know, Democrats have been kind of a non-entity in this state for practically the whole you know, 21st century. And uh, he was kind of the first person to kind of be a sign that like maybe there's some life in this party. 
And, you know, I think maybe he's kind of going back to his roots there. And like, this is where people loved me when I was the guy who was like, we're going to do this in Texas. Mm -hmm. And now here he is trying to kind of replicate that and kind of win some people back that I think he's lost in the last few months. Yeah. What I thought, what I found most interesting about that Senate race was not even the like young voters that were sort of being mobilized by that, but the more sort of, you know, late, early thirties, late thirties folks who had the potential to be involved in the political process before, but weren't until then and sort of came out to be, you know, a pretty different electorate than we had seen before, which I want to keep talking about. But first, we got to get to two more sponsors. So uh, before our next topic, a word from them. Texas Tech University. With record enrollment and research expenditures, an international campus and nation-leading programs, Texas Tech University innovates, influences, inspires, and impacts our world. More at ttu.edu. The Women's Fund at Austin Community Foundation. The Women's Fund at Austin Community Foundation invests in women and children to build a stronger, more equitable Central Texas. Get involved at austincf.org slash women's fund. Okay, so Trump's margin of victory over Clinton was nine points. Obviously, no longer the double digit that we were used to seeing. Uh, in 2018, Cruz and O'Rourke, that was less than three points with a very different electorate. You know, assuming that the 2018 electorate comes back out and is joined by the presidential year only voters. What does that mean for that margin? And Evan, this is the part where I'm going to force you to make a prediction. Uh, well, well, you know, so, so the, the nine point race between Trump and Clinton was the closest presidential race in Texas since Bob Dole beat the other Clinton in 96. That's a five point race. Romney over Obama was 16. McCain over Obama was 11. Uh, and the fact that it was nine versus 11, like McCain over Obama being 11 and Trump over Clinton being nine, the margin was seen by people as much more significant than just two points because it was a psychological threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, and paired again with the, you know, the idea in 2018 that Beto could get the Senate race down from, you know, Cornyn had beaten his opponent in 2014, his Democratic opponent, by 26 points. Right. Beto lost to Cruz by 2.6%. Beto got the margin down by 90%. All of a sudden, people are like, whoa, this is really pretty amazing. But what you have to understand and remember, and you do, and we all do, is that it is not just more Democrats who are going to turn out in a presidential election year. It's also more Republicans. And there is a concerted effort on the part of a number of groups, not just the Steve Ministeri-led, not just by him, but he's one of the principals in this, effort to register a whole bunch more Republicans. But we had a visit in this office this week from our friend Corbin Castile, who uh, was involved with the Trump campaign early on uh, in Texas. He's a longtime Republican political consultant who is part of an effort to uh, register and turn out, not just in Texas, but around the country, evangelicals. Uh, The assumption is that many of those folks will turn out to vote and vote Republican in the presidential, and they may not have been as active in voting in 2018. So, I mean, yes, it's presidential election year, and yes, Democrats have the potential to enjoy higher turnout than they did in the last election, but, you know, they did pretty well in the last election. You know, the votes of young people were up significantly, the votes of Hispanics were up significantly, the votes of women voting Democratic maybe for the first time in a while were up significantly. I I wonder how much more room there is for that to grow, but I also think that Republicans are going to also try to add to their numbers, and so I don't don't know. The overall turnout number is interesting. The Mm -hmm. turnout number in 2018 was 8.3 million. The turnout in the 2016 presidential was nearly 9 million. So if you figure that the last presidential year turnout was 9 million, but the midterm turnout, which is typically significantly lower than that, was 8.3 in and of itself. Where could the presidential year turn out be next time? 11? 
Well, I mean, with two more years of population growth and two more years of seventeen and 16 and 17-year-olds becoming 18 and 19-year-olds. I would just like to know who the Democratic nominee is. This is gets back to Matthew's sort of in some ways. Here, here He's exactly right that the general election is going to be more interesting than the primary. I would like to know who the Democratic nominee is before I were comfortable. I mean, you want me to predict. I'm going to resist, and I'm going to resist in part because I don't know who the Democratic nominee for president is yet. I think that's the, the, the untold question. You know, I think president's not going to be frog-marched out of the White House. That seems clear. He's running. He'll be the nominee. The Republican Party is largely unified behind Trump. Um, there's no last-minute entry of Superman into the Senate race, Texas Senate race, so mm-hmm. we know who those candidates are likely to be. But we don't know who the Democratic presidential candidate is going to be. And I think depending upon who it is, you could be looking at one scenario or another scenario. I think it depends on how you frame this debate, right? If, if the question is, is Texas going to go for the Democrat in the presidential election, you know, I think that there's room for a lot of healthy skepticism about whether that's going Anybody to be Anybody at the table think that the Democrats are going to win at the presidential level in Texas? No. I will go on the record saying no to that one. I would not. If you asked me to bet, I would certainly bet on Trump winning Texas. Same? Yes. I think, but, but can you say from predictions? Two, okay, two thumbs up. But the the right. it's it's more than that, right? Because you know, last you know, in twenty sixteen, nine percent was like, whoa, that was a really close margin. And I mean, if you look at whatever polls that are far out, you don't see nine percent. You know, generic Democrat, generic Republican presidential race, mm-hmm. or even in head to head matchups, you don't see nine percent. You see that gap shrinking. And, you know, the, I think it's much more, it's getting much more competitive and that's a very important shift. You know, I think Trump is still the big favorite to win Texas, but, you know, there are questions now of would the Democrat try to compete here? And I have some skepticism about that too, for the reasons we discussed earlier, because it's going to be really expensive to do so. And Trump's going to have probably more resources. Yeah, but I actually think the Democrats would compete here for the same reasons that you just explained, that the margin is showing up in the polls to be narrower. If you're Joe Biden and you happen to win the nomination, given the fact that the polls have shown you to be neck and neck with the president and the president effectively at 50-50 in approval and disapproval in Texas – and given the number of electoral votes from Texas, you probably think I got to compete for the state. Well, I mean, even and it's already clear, I think, that this is a long term strategy. If you look at we had another lawsuit this week with the DCCC, the DSCC, all those acronym soup acronym uh, partnering with the Texas Democratic Party for another voting rights lawsuit. These are not lawsuits that are going to be resolved before the 2020 election. But I do think it signals at their interest in sort of paving the way to have at least a different kind of electorate or at least freeing up the people who they think are being harmed by these laws that they're trying to now fight. They are already signaling that this the is a longer The question is whether term. there are enough votes to harvest in those efforts and whether the courts are going to decide favorably in time for the election that those folks can get – Yeah. can vote. Well, Sure. I mean, but I, I do think I'm not you know, trying to be a fire blanket on your yeah, point, yeah, yeah. but I just there no, is a timing issue. But I do it. think you know I, I saw this tweet from uh, State Rep. Mary Gonzalez where she was saying that she wakes up in the middle of the night at the thought of a 75 Republican, 75 Democrat House in in 2021, mm-hmm. and I I do wonder even if Democrats are not able to flip the House, if they can close the margin at the presidential level, if they can close the margin in the state House, 
you've got to, I mean, that feels like a different ball game at least, mm-hmm. both politically and legislatively. And don't, and don't you think, Cassie, that the narrowing of the partisan split from 95-55 to 83-67 between the 17 and 19 sessions was in fact the reason that the session went the way that it did? Oh, absolutely. It changed everything. Yeah, of course. And to Alexa's point, if you don't see an outright flip of the house, you're uh, you know, more than likely going to see a, a closing of, of, the, of the margin like you're talking about, and that even changes the, yeah. the landscape more. I mean, you know, there's a world in which Republicans end up, uh, you know, winning back some of the, the 12 seats that they lost in 2018 and, you know, somehow fending off or, you know, con- continuing to, to hold on to the nine seats that uh, Democrats are, you know, away from. But I don't know. But don't you think logically, if you assume that there are four potential outcomes on the House, Texas House, just since we're talking about this. Yeah. Republicans pick up seats, Republicans lose seats, but retain control. Democrats pick up seats, but don't get control. Democrats, it's a tsunami, not a wave, right? The likeliest outcome in this election sitting here today is a couple of yards on either side of midfield. Mm Mm-hmm. Republicans retain control, but the margin shrinks, or Democrats win control, but they win by the barest margin. It is effectively going to be Mary Gonzalez's worst nightmare. It's going to be like, I mean, I think 76-74 on either side, with either side being the 76, is much more likely than going back to 95-55, right? I mean, even you want to talk about running the table. Forget whether it's the Garen strategy or the other strategy on the targeting incumbent Democrats. I find it impossible to believe that the circumstances politically set up so that Beckley and Kalani lose their seats and maybe somebody else, Tallarico or Rosenthal, one of the people who picked up a seat that was a Republican seat previously, that they all lose and the the Republicans hold the nine Mm. that they won the last time by narrow margins. I, I just have a hard time also imagining that the Democrats pick up enough seats to win back control because the math on that has to assume that they overperform on the Republican side and they hold all their folks. Well, the last time we had a 76-74 was what, the 2009? Was the Joe Strauss, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the year that Joe Strauss took over the took House. over, and then they had the 2010 blow, Republicans blew out the Democrats. Right. And went and up to 99-51, and then two Democrats switched parties, and the Republicans were up over 100. Well, and I think what's, what's fascinating about that timing is that even if we end up with a 76-74 House that favors Republicans, it's happening in a redistricting year. Mm-hmm. So it's different from a 2009-76-74 margin because this time, I mean, I guess you could redistrict any year you want, technically. But it's different because you are now going into redrawing these lines, no longer have incumbents that can def- you know, defend why you're drawing lines in a specific way. It does play a different role in the end, at least on that front. Yeah, and you have a, and you have an open speaker's race, regardless of the outcome, right? right? Whether it's Republican control or Democratic control. I also just think, I mean, taking a big picture look at this. I mean, what we're, what we're talking about right now is is the Democrat going to compete in the presidential race in Texas? Could Republicans possibly lose control of the Texas House? And when you take a step back and think about what conservative Texas means, not just for the state but for the country at large. You know, you, you think about uh, not just electoral college votes, but how Texas kind of leads the legal fight against the Democratic president whenever that person's there. The, the influence Texas Republicans have had on policy nationwide, the just amount of resources, how important it is to have the like antidote to California yeah. in the state. And now we're talking about this year, is that grip 
possibly being loosened, whether it's plausible. Yeah. It's and, like the Patriots losing. And is you know, and and even if they can't do it this you time around, that funny. is that changing? I mean, what we're talking about here is like the possible like over the next you know, not just looking forward to this year, but over the next decade, a kind of the potential for transformational change, not just in Texas politics, but that change affecting politics across the country. And, you know, whether it all, all that, whether the time for that to be happening is this specific year is one thing, but we shouldn't be dismissing the, the broader implications of all of this, not mm -hmm. just for next year, but for this whole decade going forward. Well, speaking of transformational change, that is the end of my first TripCast and yes, hopefully did a transformative well. experience for you, everyone. You did great. Um, that's all the time we have. Thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to Citify, Raise Your Hand Texas, Texas Tech University, and the Austin Community Foundation, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Cassie, Matthew, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Regina, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. <laughs>